0: Hello, and thank you for that warm welcome. My name is Jacob Neideg, your host here on The Sports Zoo. We will be temporarily joined by special guest Kieran Majetti and my normal co-host Zach Zaffron. But in the news of sports day, before we get to talk to either of them, let's just take a recap of what all is going on, starting out with the broader and maybe most watched aspects of sports right now, which is... The NBA playoffs, the NBA playoffs right now, really a sight for the average sports fan, but also the basketball fan that lives, breathes, and dies for these moments. Last night, the finals matchup officially cemented between the Miami Heat of the Eastern Conference and the Denver Nuggets of the Western Conference. That's going to be a great matchup for both fans of statistics and individual players and also fans of the underdog and kind of the narrative around what it means to be the team that people can rally around, that no one expects to win because Jimmy Butler, playoff Jimmy, Jimmy Buckets, and this Heat team, the number eight seed are facing off against the number one seeded Nuggets in what will be a great matchup. As mentioned, this is the Sports Zoo KZSU 90.1 FM. My name is Jacob Natick. We'll be doing a deep dive into the NBA playoffs as a whole and also kind of what it means for the entire sport and as a sports fan with special guest star Kieran Majetti. We'll also be talking a little bit about Stanford softball who just punched their ticket to Omaha in the Women's College World Series. We'll be talking about the Stanford baseball team who will be hosting a regional here on the farm starting on Friday. That was announced just this past weekend as they claim the number eight national seed. Then we'll be kind of looking forward. This is our second to last episode here on the sports due from the school year. And so we're going to take a recap and kind of just talk about some of our favorite sports memories from the past year, whether that's a huge upset for a particular team, whether that's a deep postseason run for a team, whether that's an individual performance, we're going to be jumping into every single moment from this past year that really sparked Zach, Kieran, and I's interest in sports as a whole. And undoubtedly, that will. Really show you kind of what brings various sports fans into the realm of sports on the farm because the average Stanford student, folks, is so busy. That's no secret to any of you listeners that are maybe Stanford students, any of you people associated with the farm, but for some of our listeners, the farm. And what it means to be a Stanford student is such a high-paced, quick environment. People are doing classes. They're working part-time internships. They're volunteering. They're in various student organizations. They're socializing with friends. They're partying. They're exploring San Francisco. And sometimes various factors of that mean that life is so quick and so overwhelming that Some of the simple pleasures, like sitting down and watching a baseball game, might go and fly under the radar. And so we want to kind of take a moment to really just remember what those moments are this past year that have really given Zach, Kieran, and I some of the joy around sports and have made it a memorable year. I know Zach and I will be doing a final tune-in episode last or next week I should say not last week next week we'll be doing a final wrap up episode and kind of talk about what the sports zoo has meant for us as two sports fans and two friends that have gotten to come on this journey with each of you listeners and really gotten to know each other well gotten to know sports from a different angle and really just try to pass some of that love down to each of you I've already kind of shared a brief overview of what we're talking about here today we are now joined by my co-host Zach Zaffron and special guest star Kieran Majetti without any further ado let's just go ahead and jump right into it with our guest on the show today Kieran why don't you tell our listeners out there a little bit kind of about your journey as a sports fan where you're from who your teams are some of your favorite players that you've been watching lately just across sports as a whole
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on today, Jacob. Um, For all the listeners out there, my name's Kieran. I'm born and bred in the Bay Area. And so, grew up a Bay Area sports fan my entire life. Um, Huge basketball fan, big football fan. Recently been getting into baseball a little bit. And I also grew up playing soccer, so I do follow soccer uh, in the European leagues, particularly Premier League, Champions League. So, Bay Area teams, that means Golden State Warriors, San Francisco Giants, and San Francisco 49ers. Um, favorite players growing up? Well, I grew up right in the prime Golden State Warriors dynasty era, so I was a huge Clay Thompson guy growing up, so that's my guy right there. Um, also, I tore my Achilles during the same year that Clay tore his Achilles, so I've got a special connection to that dude yeah. in my head.
0: No, absolutely. I feel like those are kind of the, the fun things that happen in a sports fan's life so that really draw you to kind of unique players as we've touched on on the show I'm a huge Boston Celtics fan really a Boston area sports fan which I know many of you will be disappointed with but what kicked that off was my inability to shoot in youth basketball and Rajon Rondo's inability to shoot so kind of modeled my game after being a dribbling and passing wizard that could play a little bit of defense but was kind of just passing
2: the ball around to the Ray Allen and Kevin Garnett's on my youth basketball team. I mean, should we talk about the elephant in the room? You know, the fact that your Boston Celtics went down last night. Um, I'm sure we'll dive into that later, but but Kieran, I can't help but notice, you know, grew up in the Bay Area, so close to here on the farm, and no mention of the Stanford Cardinal in your teams. Is is, is that uh, a statement that was perhaps intentional?
1: A little bit. If you guys haven't noticed, Stanford football is not exactly, you know, the talk of the town around here. It's kind of an afterthought in the sports team. We're much more of a professional sports culture around here. That's not to say people don't pay attention to Stanford football. The real thing is they only pay attention when it's good. So, you know, during the Andrew Luck years, a lot of buzz around here. Even Christian McCaffrey's time here, there was a lot of buzz. But, you know, Bay Area fans are pretty fair weather when it comes to the college sports scenes, and especially if they didn't go to the schools. You'll find a lot of Cal alumni in the area who are big time Cal sports fans. And so, you know, most of the Stanford sports fans, like the hardcore ones around here, are the alums.
0: Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Did you grow up going to any of those games, or kind of what was your experience, you know, as a child in this area with Stanford sports?
1: Yeah, um, when it comes to Stanford sports, I grew up mostly going to basketball games, actually. So I have early memories of going to Maples and all of that. Um, didn't really go to a ton of Stanford football games, to be honest. Andrew Luck was a little bit before my time. And Christian McCaffrey years, watched him on TV, but didn't really come to the stadium for, for most of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so now kind of jumping yeah, into our first primary topic, which is the NBA playoffs. As I mentioned earlier, the finals matchup has been set last night's decisive Game 7 that, quite honestly, wasn't really competitive at all. But backtracking a little bit to the overall series that just ensued in each of the conference finals, the Nuggets win in a clean sweep. This Eastern Conference goes to seven games with a 3-0 blown lead that the Heat eventually are able to recover from. What did you see, Kieran, that was so different in in each of these series from just a stylistic and performance standpoint for the for the finals matchup.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. When you look at the West, you know, there was a lot of talk this entire year about how it was so competitive and how all of these teams all had a shot at the title. And when you look back on it in retrospect, you know, there were there's a lot of star power in the West, which meant, you know, a very competitive field but most of these teams' records were not all that good. They're all clumped pretty close together. That I think is a reflection really of the fact that almost all these teams had serious flaws. The one team that really didn't have any such flaws was the Denver Nuggets. And I think that reflects itself in the series sweep of the Lakers, you know. Having watched that series, it was comprehensive, you know, victory all the way through. With a little bit of Jamal Murray magic, of course. But
0: Yeah, and so I mean, I'm sure for both the Warriors fans, that was tough to see. The team that eliminated y'all just gets absolutely blown out of the water by the Nuggets. What are the Nuggets' flaws
1: that could potentially be exposed by the Miami Heat, if any? I'm picking the Denver Nuggets to win the next series. Um, I honestly don't think they have that many flaws when it comes to shooting, you know they have two great shooters in Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray, along with Jokic, who himself is capable of shooting the ball at a high level. You even saw him hit some circus shots in the last series. Um, I think defensively is really where the question marks arise. Do they have? Does Miami have enough to draw Jokic out and really punish him on the defensive end? I know there are a lot of advanced analytics which do like Jokic as a defender, but there are ways to punish him. And speaking from experience as a Warriors fan, having watched them match up in the playoffs a few times in the last few years, you know, there are ways to take advantage of it. The question is, will Miami be able to do so?
2: Yeah, Zach, and and what do you think about that? Absolutely. I think it's a matchup thing. Um, Looking at, obviously, Jokic being the firepower. I mean, honestly, I I would argue Jamal Murray is their guy, especially when it comes postseason time. Uh, Jacob knows better than anyone else. I'm the biggest Jokic hater out there. Um, I don't think he's cut out for the playoffs, so obviously working against them but a guy like jamal murray shows up when it matters most and um i think the heat in jimmy butler he's just such a defensive stud even though he gets it done on the offensive end he's a guy that could step up in that moment uh the two things that i'm looking at are number one just kind of the timing of the series three days removed from a seven game treacherous series for the heat is tough but would i be crazy to say it's almost in their favor the nuggets have not seen the court in so long the the thing about the playoffs is it's It's you're in the flow, and that's why these late postseason games get so good. And they've been completely taken out of that like cyclical nature. Um, I don't know if we're going to see a Nuggets team in top form because they haven't been on the court in so long. Whereas the Heat, you know, they're ready to jump back on this, they're fired up. They've been through the most emotional parts of their postseason. I think that they're just absolutely ready to pounce on this matchup. The other thing I'm looking at is that Jokic matchup, probably have Bam Adebayo guarding him, who is a more dynamic defender at the center position, big man position than almost anyone you can find in the entire league. I think that that could be the Jokic stopper that no one else has been able to provide. Um, People thought it'd be Anthony Davis. I'm also an Anthony Davis believer. um, And I think he definitely has a shortcoming, especially in the postseason, but Bam Adebayo going to keep Jokic on his toes defensively and also going to really prove to be maybe a a stick up his, you know, um, throughout the series.
0: Absolutely. And, That is such an interesting kind of emotional aspect of these playoffs. I mean, the Heat lose the play-in game, and at that, everyone had basically counted them out. And yet they come all the way back to the Eastern Conference Finals. Then they're up 3-0, and and people were getting ready to say it was going to be a sweep in both conferences. And then they blow a three-game lead, and a game seven is forced. What do you think went through kind of the heat's journey in game in this past series and kind of what did their game seven performance show y'all about their locker room kind of presence and their ability to bounce back from the way they lost game six and then put on such a dominant performance in game seven
1: yeah i'll say i think the most impressive thing about the heat's game seven performance is the performance of the role players i know you know role players this role players that but really the playoffs do come into a lot of role player performances you know who steps up in a game when one of your stars isn't feeling it right and you need you know an extra 10 15 points from what they normally provide I think we saw that in the game last night right where Boston just couldn't buy a shot you know but the Heat players they kept coming through it's a make or miss league you know if those shots fall in for Boston who knows how this game turns out and how the finals matchup looks but we can only speak on what actually happened and I think what reveals itself is that the heat's role players were ready to step up when their when their name was called
2: obviously the guy you got to talk about in that that instance is Caleb Martin i mean what a performance he had um, kind of kept the heat afloat especially when Jimmy a guy that really willed them to definitely a 2-0 lead not so much in game three but um Caleb Martin was the guy that was always seemingly creating this emotional turn for the Celtics anytime there was just a thorn in their side it was Caleb Martin of all people getting the job done um you know, we're big Jimmy Buckets believers on this show, but, uh, he can't single-handedly do it, especially when he's been doing this for the last four years for the heat. Um, so who else is it going to be? Bam out of bio hasn't been having the greatest year of his career. It's been guys like Caleb Martin, like Duncan Robinson, of all people reemerging out of nowhere, even Max Struess stepping up when it matters most.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Caleb Martin, you know, I thought I was going to kind of be an outlier here and being like, wow, what a performance he had. Not at all, because, this series, he was so dominant. I mean, just looking at the number of minutes that he played in each of these games and it's it's such a telling story. He's seeing above 30 minutes in the last two games. He saw 41 and 45 minutes, over 10 rebounds in the last two games to go along with 26 and 21 on a very efficient 11 for 16 last night and 7 for 13 in the game 6 loss but it's not just what he did in on the stat sheet it was the way he had an answer every time the Heat needed it and he he kind of was able to tap into that at the moments when it seemed like the Heat needed it most and those are the type of players that step up in those moments that really can propel a team like back from you know a, a blown three zero lead lead to, to kind of remain composed and and keep shooting the ball and trust themselves
2: well, well jimmy obviously you know eastern conference finals mvp but I, I was seriously giving thought to the fact that they might give it to caleb martin I mean, do you think that maybe they they should have or at least taken another second to think it over yeah i mean i don't
0: i think it if you look at what they did out of context there's really no case to be made for that. The thing with Caleb Martin is he's his expectation is so much lower than Jimmy's, and it would seem to come out of nowhere. But Jimmy, to me, was, was by far and away the, the best player on the Heat and maybe even in the series. So I think that's a very valiant thought and one that definitely crossed my mind too. But I think just what Jimmy does day in and day out is it's kind of like you get accustomed to it, whereas Caleb Martin seemingly came out of the woodwork to do that.
1: Yeah, I'm with Jacob on this one. I think when it comes to end-of-series awards, sometimes recency bias comes into play a little bit too much, and also the whole exceeding expectations argument, when in reality, you know, you look at the stars. And the NBA, more so than any other league, is a league of stars, and the guys that carried their team throughout the duration of the series should be rewarded for that.
0: And I think that that kind of bodes a great question into whether y'all think Jokic was deserving of the MVP this year I mean Embiid gets it the scoring leader Jokic already has two I'll throw it over to you first Kieran what were your thoughts on this year's MVP race
1: yeah I think the MVP has become such a twisted award in the way that it has almost stopped being about the season itself and more of you know how good of a player have you been how long have you been this good and have you ever won it before And voter fatigue comes into play quite heavily with this as well. I think it's been a long time since somebody won three MVPs. Um, Jokic got his two. I think before that was Giannis with two. And then I think there was what... Don't quote me on this one, but there was a collection of, you know, Russ, Harden, et cetera, et cetera, in the years before that. I think, personally, Jokic is the more valuable player than Embiid. And this is more of a philosophical point of mine. I always prefer players for whom you can run a team game with rather than, you know, iso-dominant players. That's just a personal preference. You can probably tell the Warriors fan uh, in yeah. this group, But I also do think Embiid was deserving of the award for his level of dominance for how long he's demonstrated it.
2: Yeah, Zach, what do you, what do you have to say about that? I think Embiid was a, was a great um, person that embodied the fact that MVP should be the most valuable player. You know, Embiid, one of those guys who struggles to stay on the court, but when he was, he was, like Kieran said, so, so dominant. But, yeah, in the case of Jokic, he absolutely was this year as well. Um, It's tough because you don't really consider the MVP award in a vacuum anymore. Definitely voter fatigue, the number one issue nowadays. I mean, if if that wasn't the case, LeBron would have maybe double-digit MVP awards. Um, Jokic, you know, back-to-back years before this one, I'd argue he shouldn't have won one of those two, and this year he should have. I think this year was outrageous, quite frankly. 63% from the field nearly averaging a triple-double, just point two assists per game away from it. This was a crazy statistical performance, but I think also, just by the eye test, he was a better player this year than the last two years.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, to me, this season, maybe not the, the last, his second MVP, but his 2021 MVP, he was by far and away much better this year. And I think the stats reflect that, but also kind of the team dynamic this year. And obviously, you're not... I you know including the playoffs and overall team success is kind of a slippery slope when it comes to like most valuable player because is it the best player in the league is it the team that or the player that you know adds the most value to their team but it is such a, a unique award nowadays too with all the historical biases where people were were really hesitant to give someone back to back to back MVPs and so it's yeah, it's, it's kind of a tough situation to be in, but I, I definitely agree with, with you there, Zach, that this season was probably, to me, in his top two out of three rather than kind of the one that was
2: the, the farthest below. And, and if he won a third MVP I mean, in a row, we'd have to put him up there with all-time greats. But what kind of struck me is, uh, at least eye-opening to put it in one way, last night, um I think it was Kevin Harland on the broadcast talking about the Celtic or the heat going up against the Nuggets and one of the game's all-time greats in Nikola Jokic and I thought that was kind of like a whoa moment um, Thinking about Jokic's legacy Certainly where we are now, but also what a finals would mean for him in the context of where he stands among the all-time greats um, As someone who's not a huge believer in him I'd, I'd love to know what you guys think is like where he stands because quite frankly He's not in the top twenty for me right now. Yeah, I
0: I, hearing him in that sentence. I I don't know if it's just the fact that his his you know unorthodox style is the reason because he. I mean, he's a five time NBA All Star, five time All NBA team with three first team selections, back to back MVPs. But to me, he still has a ways to go before you put him in that discussion.
1: Oh, I'm gonna just read a list to you guys. This is a list of players who've won the NBA MVP award three times: Moses Malone, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson. This is the list of players who've won the award two times: Bob Petit, Karl Malone, Tim Duncan, Steve Nash, Steph Curry, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Nikola Jokic. Just looking at the company that they keep, it's it's not really debatable, you know, where they're going to stand. I think we're get we got caught up in the moment a lot, you know. Thinking about the play style, their recent accomplishments, I have Nikola Jokic as an all-time great. I think whether or not you want to debate top twenty, however that Mount Rushmore keeps expanding, you know, is is up to the person themselves. But all-time great is definitely a fair statement to make with regards to Jokic. I think.
0: Yeah. What about his, the inability of team success though? Like this is now we're kind of maybe he wins it this year, but he's been in the league for he got drafted in twenty fourteen and. We haven't really seen his team be successful. How does how does
2: championships play into y'all's all time great kind of pool? I, mean, I think it's a huge factor, and honestly, I would like to have it be less of a factor than the media and the general public has it out to be. But basketball players, in the greatest of them all, are winners. You know, there's value to be a winner. Um, And I I felt pretty strongly against that until, quite honestly, I saw James Harden putting up 35-plus points on a terrible Rockets team, and I realized stat padding is something absolutely real. I saw Russell Westbrook putting up 30-point triple-doubles because they were meaningless. He was just snatching the ball from Steven Adams. I think winning in the league while also shining is the hardest thing to do in a professional sports league. So I think a championship is certainly something that should be considered. And that being said, I don't know if it's necessarily a prerequisite um, on the other side of the court from Yoko, is going to be Jimmy Butler. Um, I think he should be absolutely applauded and commended for what he's been able to do. I mean, four years with the Miami Heat, and they've been in the finals, or in the Eastern Conference finals three times. That's crazy because this Heat roster is not that special. It's really not.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, adding ahead, to that here. point, I think you know what you're touching on is that the greatest players elevate those around them. Absolutely. you know 100% like you mentioned there Russell Westbrook with his meaningless triple doubles <laughs> or James Harden stat padding with, at the free throw line I mean we talk about these players and true their games are great but I think you know people so easily want to categorize players into either winners or losers right and I think the greatest winners of all time have been those who elevated those around them with the team game but also you know you don't want winning to be the end all and Jokic of course has been in the league since 2014 and hasn't yet won and so, of course, by the definitions, not a winner yet. That being said, there are so many all time greats, you know, who just needed that one title. They went their entire career being labeled not a winner, a choker in the playoff. And they just needed that one breakthrough. I think of no other example more so than than Dirk Nowitzki, right? Dirk, he led or he was in the leader of that infamous, you know, Mavericks team that lost to the eight seeded We Believe Warriors. Of course, the example comes ahead, comes to mind first for me, but. You know, that's an all-time choke job right there. And then he followed it up with an all-time great playoff run, beating the Heatles, you know, right there, cementing his legacy as a winner, as a champion. It just takes that one moment, and all of a sudden, everyone starts talking about a player differently.
0: Yeah, no, that is actually a great example. I, I uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens. I think more so than Jokic, though, Jimmy is kind of in that position in, in resembling Dirk Nowitzki, where they're kind of at the end of their careers— They're with a cast of, not to be rude to Caleb Martin (laughs) and Bam Adebayo or J.J. Barea and some of those guys on the Mavericks team, but kind of scrappy guys that just put together a run in the postseason and then beat some really good teams. But I think Jimmy has more to gain from a championship now just because of where he's at in his career. And I think his notoriety is, is much more on the rise as a result of this playoff run than really anyone else in the league, um, including
2: Jokic. Absolutely. I'm all about the narrative, and, and I think a Jimmy Butler title would be huge, and I'd love to see it. Um, but to like touch up on your point, Kieran, I think context is key, certainly, and that's why it's so tough, because so much weight is placed on these championships. But you know, there's guys out there, like even Dame Lillard, who certainly hasn't come close in recent years, but early in his career, was, was willing those trailblazers pretty far. Um, another thing is being the best versus being the greatest. I think that's something that isn't talked about enough because, like you said, you know, you have Harden and Westbrook who are really good guys but aren't don't elevate those around them. They're phenomenally, they're phenomenal players. They're gifted, they're talented. They're, quite frankly, among the best players of all time. But they're not the greatest because being great is about winning. Being great is about getting the job done that you're paid to do. That's why, in my eyes, and this may be a... A hot take, but that's why Jordan will always be the greatest, and LeBron will always be the best. LeBron is so well-versed, so well-rounded, but he didn't do it like Mike did. You know, Mike is the greatest, because he went 6-for-6. Six six. He got the job done. Yeah, and no, I mean,
0: now we're really getting into the week. <laughs> greatest versus best. Versus... Karen, where do you stand on the GOAT conversation? Michael, Jordan, do you have another player that you
1: would throw in there? It's going to be Jordan for me. It's always going to be Jordan. You just have to respect that record and you know there's no changing what happened with that right you can't go back and you know, argue that if things had fallen differently if he didn't hit xyz shot right game six the flu game if he missed that shot and they lost or if steve kerr missed his famous shot they would have lost you know it totally changed everything it comes down to those singular moments which at the time you know we're there in 1990 1991 you can debate, oh, uh, I mean, Jordan, you know, he came so close to losing it a few times, but he didn't. Therefore, he remains the greatest, you know. There's so much, I think, you know, you got to just take things with so much context, you know. Looking in retrospect becomes so difficult to argue against that. Yeah, and that's why one of my hottest
0: takes is that Wilt Chamberlain actually deserves way more respect in the GOAT conversation. I don't know if he's up there with Michael and LeBron, but... And it's hard because of the era he played in, but I think he's someone that people often don't realize the kind of dominance he had in the league. And, yeah, maybe it was against janitors <laughs> and everyday businessmen, but his performances and, and the stats he put up for both of Golden State Warriors or what they were at the time was was incredible. So, I don't know. I'm just a huge Wilt fan and think what he did was—
2: incredible and often gets undervalued as a big wilt fan and and a shout out to all his sons and daughters out there um you know i i think he is a a like like there are wonders of the world He is a wonder of the basketball world i mean he, his numbers were outrageous that being said is that almost backwards jacob because he was not winning he was not out there winning he was putting up 50 point Averages for season regular seasons and coming third in MVP voting because his team was terrible. I mean, if you're going to bring up a guy from that era who should be who should have more respect for his name, guy that comes to name is Bill Russell. I mean, what was it the nine titles in eleven years? That is a guy that we should be talking about if we're talking about greatness.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm inclined to agree. I think both of those players so dominant, their stat sheets so ridiculous, and and Bill Russell and those Celtics teams were. I mean, quite honestly, some maybe the best dynasty we, we've ever seen.
1: Yeah, and I'm surprised to say that you put Wilt Chamberlain over Bill Russell in that discussion, considering wasn't it Bill who uh, beat Wilt, you know, to those championships. I mean, once again, we're circling around this idea, the best versus the greatest, you know. People will say Bill Russell was the greatest of that era, but if you look at it, you know, fairly objectively, you'd say, you know, Wilt Chamberlain, one of the freakiest athletes we will ever see mm. on this planet, mm. you know one of the greatest, you know, the 100-point game. It's a shame he played in an era where, you know, the stats and all of that weren't tracked as well for future generations to really, really analyze and dissect. But, I mean, just looking at it, you could make an argument he was the best player of all time, but perhaps not the greatest. Yeah. Now, an in, in interesting debate,
0: kind of refocusing what is going to, go, to happen in this series, Nuggets versus Heat, Give me a series prediction, and not just how many games, but kind of the narrative that's going to unfold in this series. We'll throw it out to you first, Kieran. I think it's Nuggets in either five or six. Oof. Are, are those close games, or is it a, another
1: kind of walk-in-the-park type series for for Denver? my prediction is that actually the heat might steal game one i have a feeling denver's gonna come out pretty rusty the one thing i do think denver actually has going in their favor though is a little under talked about and i think it actually impacted the lakers is the whole altitude factor he just played a seven game series and they're gonna have to fly to denver and play on very little rest you know in a mile above the sea level against a denver team that's been there for like the last two weeks you know that could balance the scales who knows i also, want to bring it back to another point that Zach made, right? Bam's Garden, Jokic, Jimmy's guarding Jamal Murray. But the beauty of the Denver system is that they have guys who can go at it one on one, but they also prefer to play a team game with Jokic as the hub in the middle of the defense. Can Miami play team defense all the way around? If they put Duncan Robinson on the floor for extra shooting, is he going to get cooked, right? You know, these are the kinds of things, these are the kind of questions I want to know and want answered. Additionally, you know, just to throw it back, I think. Aaron Gordon as a defender, put him on Jimmy Butler. He can match up size wise. He guarded LeBron, you know. And other than that, all the guys are pretty capable defenders.
0: So a pretty confident analysis in favor of the Nuggets. Zach, give us the argument and and even <laughs> if you have to expand a little bit on
2: why you think the Heat the Heat have a chance here. Yeah, I would I I sadly. Sadly I, I do see the Nuggets. Winning in um, five or six. But you're but, not trusting Jimmy Buckets. You can't bail on him now. I, no, <laughs> we, no, no, no. From the bottom of my heart, I'm hoping the Heat pull this one out in seven games. I don't see it any other way. I think the Nuggets take, take game one for the very reasons Kieran just laid out. I think things can get interesting. Heat steal game two. Jimmy Butler has a 45-plus, if not 50-point game. Game three, back in Miami, they have a chance to really capitalize, and they don't. The Nuggets take it. Then I think the Nuggets take game four. I think this is going to be a series in which like, the Heat get some falsified confidence, and the Nuggets just reclaim it right out of their hands, to be quite honest.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think that is definitely a storyline I think could very easily unfold. I, I personally am a huge believer in the rest. I hadn't even thought about the altitude, quite honestly. But, I think game one we'll see whether there's any rest, but this Nuggets team hasn't played. Though It'll be over a week that they'll have rested. I think that is a is a huge factor. I think the last game they played was in the May 21st or 22nd. They're not going to kick tip off in for another day or two here. So, I think early in the season, the series will definitely skew towards the nu- Nuggets, sorry. But I think what happens in the games in Miami will really dictate dictate the series because if the Heat can win at home, then I think this
2: series is definitely one they could somehow find a way to steal. I mean, we saw what happened in the Boston series. The Heat won two, three in Boston. They only won one in Miami. Um, a game which Jimmy Butler did not even play all that well. Um, it will be interesting to see whether or not home court advantage is something that has strong importance in this series. Yeah. Um, one last note just on my Wilt Chamberlain. Just got the
0: statistician in. He averaged 50.4 points per game in his one of his seasons over 80 games. He played an 80 of 82 games and averaged 50 That's absolutely ridiculous. That's my final argument in favor of...
2: Put some more respect on Wilt Chamberlain's name, folks. No one was putting respect on him back then. (laughs) Oscar Robinson won... No, was it Oscar? I think Bill Russell won MVP that year, and Oscar Robinson averaged a triple-double that year. Also didn't even win it. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Kind
0: of jumping ship now to Stanford softball and Stanford baseball, two sports that we have talked about quite extensively in recent weeks, and we're going to keep that up because... They keep winning and keep inching closer closer to their goals of postseason glory. Let's start with the softball team who arrived in Oklahoma City today. We did a preview of the Supers last week and kind of what could be expected in their matchup. Zach, why don't you just let our fans know that maybe aren't as in tune with we hear a little coughing in the background, all three of us kind of going through a little spring sickness right here, maybe even summer sickness, some would call it. But, Zach, why don't you give our listeners who maybe didn't have a chance over the weekend to tune in just a quick recap of the scores before we jump into a, recap, a full recap and a OKC preview.
2: Well, um, last time we previewed this a week ago... Cardinal were headed to Durham, North Carolina to play number 5 Duke, a matchup that we thought would be intriguing, but we felt pretty confident the Cardinal would take care of business, and that they did, starting off with a 3-1 victory on their first game out. I mean, Caitlin Lamb had a two-run double late in the game. It was the fifth inning, so that one just kind of sent them over the edge, took Game 1, and then in Game 2, I mean, there was really no contest. It was a four-run fifth inning to do the team justice, but they they won that one 7-2, and five for nine with runners in scoring position. I mean, this is a team that takes advantage of every advantage that they have. Anytime that they have any leverage, they're going to pounce on that opportunity. And so now they find themselves against the number one team in the nation, Oklahoma, a team that is and 56-1, a team that we know is scary, historically, out of this world good, and a team that both Jake and I said, were the one team we were scared for the Stanford Cardinal team to face.
0: Yeah, I mean, they just broke the record for longest winning streak in NCAA softball history. But before we preview that, I think we this team just deserves a little bit more to talk about the appreciation of their series against Duke and, and kind of some of the performances that do that because they traveled across the country, rallied in Game 1, and then dominated in Game 2. And I think... We've talked about it a lot, but Najari Candidate, what a performance she had in this Super Regional. Game one, continued on what has been a phenomenal season for the freshman. She went seven innings, gave up one run, which was earned, struck out nine, four total hits. They didn't even need anyone else in that series or in that game. And again, it only takes a few runs to win games, and Stanford was able to push across three, which which proved to be decisive in that game one. Jumping into game two, which, of course, a lot more dominant, but similar story. Stanford pitching gets it done. Vodder starts, goes four innings. Najari candidate comes in, final three innings, gets the save, struck out four, and gave up one hit. Other than the pitching staff, you kind of mentioned some of the the key hits in game one, Zach. Did y'all see any players that either surprised y'all or had really good days in the play or made a nice sliding play? Zach, I'll throw it over to you first, and then
2: Kieran, you can you can follow up. It really was an, an all around effort. You had six different people register RBI's in that game too. It, it, that's the beauty of this Stanford offense is that it's not just one person that you can kind of key in on and you know eliminate. Six different people stepping up and batting people in. That that's a scary offense to face. I guess just by virtue of talking about RBI's, shout out to Danny Hayes for being the only multi RBI hitter and she did it when it mattered most in that big inning that they had down there at the bottom of the fifth when right before that i mean clinging on to a 3-1 lead with three innings to play you really don't know any what could happen you don't know but stepping up when it matters most all around depth uh i just think it's the entire batting order top to bottom that you got to shout out especially for a team that is doing something so historic first time stanford has hosted the ncaa regionals i believe at home first time that they're in the college world series in quite a few years first time they've piece together a 40 win season in 11 years um again an all-around
0: effort yeah over to you karen anyone that that really caught your eye
1: yeah i was gonna say taylor g she threw someone out at home from center field so that's a big arm right there i mean excellent defense they're gonna need that definitely if they are to beat oklahoma in the final she also had two hits in game two i think just looking at the box score and just trying to understand like how this team could beat oklahoma it's got to be all teamwork you know everybody has to contribute on the offensive side and then you're going to just need to make one or two excellent defensive plays throughout the game yeah i mean i love the taylor g
0: gindle right there the graduate fifth year playing in the outfield she was absolutely excellent. That throw out at home proved to be so pivotal, but this is something that is really right up what she's done. The Stanford career leader in triples, looking back since 2020, when she really started earning that full-time role, she's batted 402, 333, 341, and this year is at a 340 clip. She's been absolutely dominant, and you know, as a whole, this is kind of a team that can get it done at any position. Another person for me that really comes to mind is Danny Hayes, the sophomore from Pennsylvania. She had a huge hit in one of the games that ended up proving to be the deciding factor. Ended up driving two in that really clinched the game for Stanford. And put on a performance that I think many people wouldn't have seen given that she hasn't really played all that much she had 15 starts last year but this year only has a handful of games many of which are pinch hitting performances comes in against Duke and does literally just that with the two with the single up the middle that that came into in, in that fifth
2: inning that proved to be so decisive in Durham game 2 and so now with a matchup impending with the already two-time defending ncaa champions how do you think they vote i mean just to look at their matchup in the most recent sense um i believe that oklahoma has won the last three meetings and then it was not close it was a 10-1 victory in just six innings um on neutral site too so it's not like they were in front of their loud home crowd um Do the Cardinals stand a chance? I'd love to think that they do, especially with this Cinderella-like run, just in the greater scheme of things. Um, Is is an upset impending by any chance?
1: I mean, I think there are some reasons to be optimistic. Um, I think the last time these two teams played, um, I believe February 10th, Mark Campbell Classic in Irvine, California, um, they won 10-1. to What will give Stanford hope, though, is that the Sooners did not face Nidra Kennedy or Alana Walter in that game? I mean, the pitching matchups are really going to be key in this final. I actually think it's going to be you know very much defensively oriented.
0: Yeah i I think this Oklahoma team is one that you know is coming in so dominant, but they have shown an ability to kind of slip up at times in their super regional it took them extra innings against clemson to actually win they had an 8 to 7 comeback win on saturday and so i think that is kind of a bit telling that that there are ways to challenge this team i think the the key point to me is stanford has to keep the ball in the park these ou hitters are going to have the power to hit home runs and it really does take one or two pitches Against Oklahoma to completely change the game because they can put any given ball over the fence, and so I think that to me is going to be one of the key points is whether these Stanford pitchers can keep the ball down in the zone, create weak contact and whether Oklahoma is able to kind of use
2: the power that has propelled them thus far totally but but on the flip side almost you know this is a very disciplined Stanford team that hasn't shown that same tendency to slip up, but you wonder if. If the Sooners do slip up, this is a Stanford team that, like we've said, pounces on every opportunity. They had just three hits in that first game at Duke, and they converted it into three runs. I mean, if Oklahoma just gives up, not gives up, but rather slips up at any moment, you know, it could bode well on the offensive end. And as we know, it's this, this defense of the Cardinal. It's that pitching of Alana Vada, of Najari Kennedy that has put this team in the position that they are now.
1: Yeah, I mean, the flip side to what you mentioned is, you know, scoring three runs on three hits, that's, you know, that's not a lot of margin for error, right? The thing is, you know, as we mentioned, Stanford's pitching (coughs) is really the strength of their team. And so, as such, those games are always going to turn into, you know, games with fine margins. It's just going to take one or two moments, one or two excellent plays. I think, you know, in a one-off, anything can happen, right? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and and that will be kind of the, the question here, I love also that Stanford has kind of a one-two uh, combo to to come out and start these games. We've seen the the coaching staff has really utilized that, giving some of the batters in in those game twos a a new look with Fodder, and then re bringing back in Canada. And I think as likely as it is that you see a team twice here, or if Stanford can make it to the finals and has to play the three game series that Oklahoma could somehow see these pitchers now for for three or four games over a week, week and a half long tournament, and so that'll be that'll be key. But either way, I feel like this is a very successful season and the thing is anything that happens in Omaha or excuse me, Oklahoma City will will just be icing on top of the cake so far for this for this softball team. Jumping over to the other diamond, which is baseball, they're getting ready to host a regional here, so just beginning postseason play, where it's set up as a sort of round Robin-esque tournament, double elimination, four teams coming in from really kind of around everywhere, only one regional hosted across college baseball on the West Coast. And so Stanford will start off on Friday night, which will be broadcasted live here on KZSU 90.1 FM at 2 p.m. I believe this team though was not very successful in the Pac-12 tournament. They came in as the number one seed. They had the pitcher of the year in Quinn Matthews, the player of the year in Alberto Rios. They had other first team awards in Braden Montgomery, Carter Graham. This has been one of the best teams in the entire country and really far and away the best team in the Pac-12 yet. They weren't able to win the Pac-12 tournament or even put up a good performance
2: in, what happened in the Pac-12 tournament? I I I wish it wasn't complacency, but I think that's what it was. You know, this is a team that is maybe looking one too many games ahead of where they are. What has gotten them into the position that they are is that they've taken it one game at a time. You know, that's what the recipe for success is. And instead, obviously, when you have national championship aspirations, you have to be prepared. For anything, but can't overlook the fact that you're the best Pac-12 team. You can't overlook the fact that you have games in between now and that national title run. Um, And it definitely hurt them. Dropped all the way to the number 8 national seed. And yes, they are hosting a regional, but quite frankly, the teams in their region give me some cause for concern. No, absolutely. And so in that Pac-12 tournament,
0: start out with our rivals across the Bay in Berkeley, And that was a game that Stanford ended up winning 18-10. to Kind of one of those games that feels like we've talked about every week on the show where the Cardinal are in a marathon-esque offensive bout where you've got to put up over 10 runs just to win the game. This game was tied 5-5 at one point in the sixth inning, but that was not until Stanford actually came back. We were losing five to two against Berkeley in the end of the fifth inning. Wow, coughs all around here. The spring flu is is live and well on Stanford's campus. If you're listening to this, go take a break, wash your hands, put on some hand sanitizer. No, but Stanford was down five to two, ends up winning eighteen to ten. Berkeley is not a team that we should be down five to. And then obviously we lose an extras to Oregon and then get run ruled by Arizona when Quinn Matthews couldn't even make it out of the second inning. Is there reason, before we jump into a preview of the regionals, from either of your perspectives about whether kind of a a less than optimal Pac-12 tournament performance is reason to be concerned? I'll throw it over to you, Kieran, about how kind of that Pac-12 tournament can kind of play into postseason performances as a whole or whether you think this team will be able to bounce back.
1: Well, I mean, I think the most important thing is they got another opportunity, right? It's not the final word on their season. They have a chance to right the ship, to play how they really want to. I think, you know, in regionals, they're joined by what? Cal State Fullerton, San Jose State, and Texas A&M. I just think these are teams that they may not, you know, see as regularly during their, you know, Pac-12 season, right? It gives them something new to look forward to. Maybe gets rid of the fatigue and the complacency that Zach mentioned. I think it just gives them a new opportunity. They better go out and seize
0: it. Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of a regional draw that I think many Cardinal fans are, are wishing was a little bit easier. Zach, you touched on that a little bit. I think the number 2 seed, especially Texas A&M, really giving people a lot of angst around because this was a team that really many people didn't even think was going to make the postseason. They ended up winning the SEC tournament, the conference tournament of the best team, of the best conference in college baseball, four wins in six days. What did, or sorry, they made it to the conference title game, didn't end up winning, but basically ensured their ticket was punched. Do you think AM is the biggest threat, or, or should the Cardinal fans even take it a little bit slower and be worried
2: about the first game against San Jose State? Uh, you know, like like I said, take it one game at a time, really focus on San Jose State. But the fact that A&M was there until the end in the SEC tournament, of all places, you know, all quarter long we've talked about the fact that the SEC is so, so dominant in this baseball sphere. And in the playoffs, you know, this is something we touched up on during March Madness. I just think recency is huge how you're playing most recently the the direction that you're headed is a telling factor of what's to come for you and I think the fact that the Cardinal are not coming off the strongest Pac-12 performance could hurt them I also think that there's a real chance for it to act as a wake-up call for it to give them another reason to keep fighting but other teams are also going to be fighting and the fact that A&M came so close to the SEC title maybe is upset that didn't win hardware there so they want to win hardware elsewhere but is also aware of how good they really can be. The fact that their ceiling is perhaps a lot higher than they initially thought could be scary for the Cardinal.
0: And I think that really has been the story with a and this whole year. You ask any fans down in College Station, the fact that they're not hosting a regional is really a surprise with, with this team. The fact that they're not even a national seed at all hosting a Super Regional also would have been a surprise because this team had some of the best expectations. They were predicted to be right up there with the likes of the other SEC programs that are hosting this weekend and obviously the expectations changed as their year kind of went up down and all over the place but this is a team that has the potential to do that. I think before we even look farther than, than this weekend, we've got to focus on making sure Stanford and some of those pitchers kind of settle in, especially Quinn Matthews Pac-12 pitcher of the year he's been the best pitcher in the whole conference, yet gets absolutely shell-shocked in the Pac-12 tournament in what feels like kind of a similar story this is the third year in a row now that we've had a Pac-12 pitcher of the year Brendan Beck, Alex Williams, now Quinn Matthews. Every single one of them seems to choke as soon as the postseason play begins and, and one can only hope that Quinn Matthews doesn't follow suit there. I'll kind of ask you, besides Quinn, what other players are you looking for to either just continue on a hot streak or, or step up? Uh, you can. Why don't we start with you, Zach, and then Kieran, you can follow up if he doesn't touch on anyone that, that you were thinking of. I'd love to see some
2: Braden Montgomery. Um, You know, last week we had the pleasure of having Carson uh, on the show, you know, the voice of Stanford baseball, one of the most knowledgeable guys about Stanford baseball. Um, He noted that Braden is a guy who has been talked about so much, especially last year, less so this year, not because he is not producing because his batting averages are still off the charts, but it's that pitching that is somewhat regressed and not taking the leap that we wish it did in the sophomore year. If you could come out here put up some stellar pitching performances. That is what this team needs right now. I mean, putting up, giving up eight-plus runs in all three of the Pac-12 tournament games, they needed some support from the bullpen. They need guys to step up from places they're not maybe expecting. I think Bray Montgomery is a guy who's built for the stage, built for the big-time moments, and built to show up
0: right now. Absolutely. Karen, anyone else coming to mind for you, or do you just agree with Zach's sentiment?
1: I mostly agree with Zach's sentiment. I think, you know, the other thing we just got to, you know, you got to have your stars show up. I mean, especially in these kinds of tournaments where, like, it's not a seven-game series. It's not like professional baseball where you have multiple chances, you know, multiple bites at the apple. Your best guys got to get hits. They got to help you win. Like, for instance, right, even in the Arizona game, it's a one-off. But, you know, Alberto Rios, he's batting, what, like 403 for the year, but no hits in the game, you know. You just need the guys who've already been producing to continue to produce when the margin for error is so thin.
0: Yeah, and the San Jose State team is is another team that I think is giving Cardinal fans a little bit of worry because of how good they have been at at late. They this is their first NCAA appearance since 2002. This year they just won the Mountain West Championship, which was their first ever. Their coach was Mountain West Coach of the Year. They had six players named to all Mountain West accolades. And if they win, based off of how seeding works, they'll actually host an NCAA Super Regional, most likely, given how the other brackets would fall out, which would be the first time they would do that since 2000. So this San Jose State team is one that's coming in red hot with a lot on the line. And kind of a performance this season, and especially as of late, that is so uncharacteristic for for their program. Stanford has their hands full in, in this series. It'll kick off, as mentioned, on Friday. Zach, besides that, why don't we do a quick around the farm here before we tune off and leave you with yet another week of fantastic sports here on the farm and really across the U.S.? Well, of
2: course... Got to give the tip of tip the hat to the teams that keep on winning national championships. Women's rowing, getting the job done in their regatta, adding to the fact that Stanford may reclaim the Director's Cup. This is huge, huge, huge news for Stanford Athletics fans. Um, also, Stanford sailing, making noise in the ICSA Spring Championship events. Can't forget about the teams like that that really get the job done.
0: No, absolutely. absolutely. And so, with that, we will go ahead and take off today. You've been listening to KZSU 90.1 FM. My name is Jacob Nidig. Been joined in studio by Zach Zafran and special guest star Kieran majetti We'll be back for our final episode of the quarter next week. As always, wear red, stay late, go card.